Hello, my name's Ken Barrett. Welcome to Brainland podcast number 13. If you've ever heard the term computational psychiatry, you'd be forgiven for thinking it referred to some sort of AI-enabled robotic therapist. As it happens, that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, computational psychiatry has nothing to do with computers, but it's concerned with the way our brains handle information uh, or make computations and how that might go wrong and give us problems. Who better to explain this further than someone who's been working in the field for over 20 years and has edited a book on the subject? David Reddish is Distinguished McKnight Professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Minnesota. And I'm delighted to say he's agreed to come on the podcast. So welcome, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, In our email exchange, you pointed out that you're a scientist rather than a clinician. So I wondered if you could start by telling us your background, research interests, and how you got interested in this subject. Um, My background in science is in computer science, although I've been a neuroscientist for 30 years or more now. Um, But I've always been interested in the human condition. Um, I'm a a poet and a playwright by original background. Yeah, so my my undergraduate degree was uh, I was a double major in in what we call the writing seminars and computer science, and um, you know I always thought of a, a play as an experiment, right? What would this character do in this situation? But um, I guess I was I really came to uh, to psychiatry. I kind of. It's been a very interesting and long journey, is I guess the right way to say it. I'll I'll try to do it pretty quick. Okay. Um, my laboratory. I started my laboratory in two thousand, and I was studying decision making and basic questions of decision making. And then, um, I was in a conference, and I discovered that the people who were studying addiction were looking at it from a pharmacological perspective not a learning and memory perspective. And I wrote a a kind of quick look over here paper and uh, that said, hey, if you take this learning and memory stuff that we've been doing and you, um, you know, break it by giving drugs of abuse, then you can build a model of something that shows a lot of addiction phenotypes. And suddenly I was the addiction theory guy. and, you know, I mean, all my colleagues who worked on addiction were said, oh, let's let's, you know, give you some seed money and give you and say, keep working on that. Keep doing that. And and then they asked me to teach the theory day in their addiction class. And I'm like, I, I don't know anything about that. I do a lot of reading. And um, but what it turned out is the key was really this idea of applying what we now call reliability engineering, which is an entire field in itself, to decision-making to the brain. And it turns out that not only gives you a new definition of addiction, it gives you a definition of psychiatry. And over the last 20 years or so, because that paper is 2004, so it really is, wow, it really is 20 years. So over the last 20 years, that's kind of blossomed. And I don't want to say it's just me. I mean, there's, you know, dozens of people doing this and have really, it's become a whole piece of the psychiatry world that's 
it's a wild ride to be, you know, you know, because as you said, I have no clinical background at all. I have no medical background at all. And yet here I am sitting in the middle of this, this new way to look at psychiatry. <laughs> but as you're a playwright and a poet, so some would say that's, that's, that's just a lot more clinical background than a lot of clinicians, to be honest. If you've got an imagination. <laughs> but I mean, so, so, I mean, what exactly is computational psychiatry uh, then? And why do we need it, I guess? Well, I, I mean, I'd like to say it's what psychiatry wants to be. <laughs> um, and I, I'd like to see it actually eventually just become psychiatry, the way computational neuroscience is now just neuroscience. I mean, it's deeply embedded within all of neuroscience. But the, the idea comes from two pieces. So the first part is what brains do is fundamentally a computation. And I want to be clear, I don't mean a computation like the computer on your desk that's doing the Zoom call. Yeah, I think that's important, right? isn't it, really? It's, not just... <laughs> it's a very important point. because and, and I think it's important to know that computational psychology, computational neuroscience, computational psychiatry, I kind of think of them all as the, mm -hmm. the same piece, right? How does the brain work with a computational perspective? Tried that theory. They actually tested that theory that it worked like a computer, like the one on your desk in the 1980s and the 70s and the 60s. And that turned out to be wrong, right? right? And, and I think it's really important to think of science as progressing. <laughs> so we now see it as a, and, and we being the fields of neuroscience, really thinks of the brain as doing computation in the sense of taking information in, storing that information, using that information, but using it in this, how is information stored? How is it transformed? And so the idea is that what the brain, I have a colleague who says the brain metabolizes information, which is a really nice phrase. Um, and given that the brain is doing computation, what happens when something breaks down? And I, I always like to give the, what I call the bridge analogy, right? To understand how a bridge works depends on the physics of concrete and forces and, you know, the chemistry of various things and, and all these kind of low level stuff gets built up. And then when the bridge falls down, nobody goes to the bridge and says, hey, bridge, how did you feel about that? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Right. What, what you do is you look and you say, where was the breakdown? Right. So the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in, in I guess it was in Washington State, uh, which is the famous one that tore itself apart by, there's a video of the um, concrete kind of being too oh, flexible. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. Right. Or the 35W Bridge that was in Minneapolis that fell in 2007, right? The, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge happened because the concrete was too, was too flexible and could therefore bend. Right. The... Um, um, 35W, the Minneapolis bridge, fell because the metal plates that hold it up were not strong enough. Right. They were not built to spec, and they actually had had bent, and therefore steel when it's bent is, of course, much less strong right. than steel when it's straight, right? So a reliability engineer comes in and says, what are what they call failure modes? I don't like the word failure modes because I don't want to suggest somebody with psychiatry right. problems is a failure. So I like the word vulnerabilities right. better. But the technical word in reliability engineering is failure mode, right? But the idea is these vulnerabilities in the brain's processing of information is literally what we call psychiatry. 
Okay, so this is let me go ahead. So so a bridge is clearly a multifaceted thing. It's got many different components to it. Um, and how much more complicated is behavior and emotion and mental life, really? So rather than just say, oh, well, this is it, this is the bridge, then they say, okay, what are the components that make up this mental life? And then can we disaggregate them and say, okay, what seems to be not functioning so well here? Is that what we're saying, really? And, exactly. And, so and how, to be... it's, it's computation. It's not no, those computers, as you say. This is how does the brain compute use this information from various sources to have a a, a normal quotes day to day existence? I suppose, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And and I will point out, we kind of solved bridges like you know five hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, and we're still working on brains today. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> they are a lot more complicated, but. Um, at this point, there's some really good data that suggests that the way to think about it is as what I call decision-making systems. That is, these are, a good analogy is a hybrid car, right? That has two engines, right? It has an electric engine and a gas engine, Yeah. right? And they're both, they can break down in different ways. Honestly, if the gas engine breaks down and the electric engine's still working, your car can still go. Um, there are these multiple decision systems in humans that seem to be mostly separable in interesting ways. I like to argue for one that does planning, one that does uh, recognizes a situation and then releases fast action, practiced action chains, and one that recognizes situations and releases naturalistic behaviors, kind of species important basic behaviors, laughing with your friends, for example, right? One of my favorite data points is that people who have certain kinds of stroke, you know, they get the kind of droopy face kind of look. And um, if you tell them to smile, they'll kind of smile with half their face. But if you get them laughing, you tell them a joke, they laugh totally normal. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> And the reason is because there are these different neural circuits. And as a psychiatrist, you know, one of the things that my my psychiatrist colleagues have been pointing out is some of the things they do is what they call compensation, where if you can identify, you know, oh, the, the procedural system has learned this incorrectly and now is taking the wrong actions, could you use your deliberative planning system to not set yourself up into that situation for example right right so don't drive by the casino right. and you won't notice it and therefore you'll remove that feature right one of the things i really like to point out because it's very easy and it, it, it happens in a lot of the psychiatry discussion is how much it is internal right but in fact this is an interaction between the inside and the outside Right. And I, I think that's a really important point, even with the bridge. Right. So if we have a bridge that is weaker than we think, we can fix it by shoring up the weak parts or we can fix it by limiting how much weight we put on the bridge. Right. Which is a good model, really, for yeah, you, you, you don't uh, you don't overload yourself. You don't stress yourself if you're vulnerable. In other words. That's right. Or, or you construct other pieces, right? I always, you know, and this is true of most medical things, like, you know, an insulin pump is taking an internal system, externalizing it, and instead of using this internal feedback loop, right, where yeah. 
I'm not I'm not a medical doctor. So no, um, get it, yeah. I think it's pancreas. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's related to the okay. pancreas. Yeah, good, sure. good, good. Um, right. But instead of having your pancreas doing that, that negative feedback loop, which, by the way, is a computation. Right. Yeah. Right. Of saying, is it high enough? If it's too high, you know, release less. If it's too low, release more. Right. Simple computation, but it is a computation. Instead, you have the person who has diabetes has a chart and reads the chart and types into their, you know, insulin pump how much insulin to pump in. Right. You've you've shifted that computation from one space to another and thereby, I don't know if I'd use the word cured, but you know, in some sense, yeah, you've compensated, haven't you? For that? You've compensated. In some sense, you've made it possible for this person with diabetes to actually live a pretty normal life. Yeah. Right. And I think what we're seeing in psychiatry is this thinking of it in this computational way opens up that those possibilities. Can we talk about a specific then? Um, I mean, you mentioned addictions, and maybe if we can start with that, really. I mean, how sure. how does how does the the model um, help? You know, you you help somebody with addiction, I suppose, and understand right. it better. So. Addiction is a really interesting one because it was, in some sense, one of the first ones that really kind of was opened up in this way. And as I said, one of the things that was fascinating to me is after that 2004 paper, which was a very single, here's one vulnerability and how that one vulnerability can produce addiction-like behavior. My colleagues then said, okay, teach this theory class and said, okay, what are the theories of addiction? Mm -hmm. And I started reading them. And there were dozens. Yeah. And they all said, if you have this problem, you might be an addict. And then the people would come and attack it and say, but I have an addict who doesn't have that problem. Yeah. And I kept thinking, I mean, logic 101, that's not the counterpositive. That's not actually the logic. No. It says if A, then B, if not B, then that yeah. doesn't tell you anything about A. Okay. Right. And what I realized is all of those theories were computational problems. Right. And so what I actually, we had a paper call, which I think it was my everybody's right paper, um, which basically said addiction is a symptom, not a disease. Right. And the, so now what we have to think about is not, oh, this person is a cocaine addict. We have to think about what is the computational breakdown that has happened in this person that is driving them to continue going back to this drug that they don't want to go back to, mm -hmm. right? And depending on what that is, we'll need different treatments. Now, to be blunt, we're not there yet. <laughs> and um, one of the issues with this, with computational psychiatry is that the psychiatrists are all looking at it saying, this seems like it should be the answer. Mm -hmm. But there are very few, I don't know, I can think of maybe one kind of really concrete example where it has in fact worked and there has been a treatment. Um, there's some couple of other ones that are, you know, uh, there are theories about why these treatments are working. Um, so one example is many people with addiction um, discount the future too quickly. They're basically impulsive. Right. Now, not everybody with addiction has this. There are other 
things that can drive one to go back to drugs or go back to a behavior you don't want to go back to that doesn't come from that, right? But it turns out we can teach people to think about the future differently, make it more concrete, and that tends to slow them down in their thinking about the future. This is this is basic neuroscience has been studied. There's some beautiful papers in the kind of late 2000s, early 2010s that found not only how this works, but what the mechanism is for it. Um, and then I have colleagues, Warren Bickle is kind of the leading person who's been doing this, who's been using this training called episodic future thinking training, because it teaches you to think about the future in a concrete episodic way, which has the effect of slowing people's discounting rates and reduces relapse. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So by teaching and, a technique, teaching a thinking technique, in other words. Right. And, and importantly, I mean, one of my favorite lines that I always say is changing the brain changes the mind because we are physical brains. But changing the mind changes the brain because we are physical brains. Yeah. And so in the same way that, yes, you can come in and do deep brain stimulation or pharmacology or these new transmagnetic things, right? Yeah. That change the brain and thereby change the way the computation works and thereby change your thinking. You can also change the thinking. Cognitive behavior therapy has concrete effects on brain connectivity. That's measurable, yeah. right? Um, I have a colleague here at Minnesota. Her name is Jasmine Kamchong, who looks at the connectivity strength between the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens. So that's a, the prefrontal cortex is very involved in abstract thinking, in executive function, things like that. The nucleus accumbens is very involved in evaluation components. Yeah, and reward and addiction as well, isn't it? But yeah. Right, and reward. And because addiction is often, not always, but often a computational breakdown in the reward system, right? The nucleus accumbens is often misbehaving in addiction. Right. Um, and what she found is that first she found that people who in treatment stayed, uh, you know, stayed, uh, did not relapse. That's what I think it was the right, the right way to phrase it, uh, that people who were in treatment and did not relapse tended to have stronger prefrontal to accumbens connections. Right. Okay. So this is an observation. Right. She then modified that using transcranial stimulation yeah, yeah. and increased the effectiveness of her treatments. Wow. <laughs> right. That's a multifactor. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so this is a, a situation where we're saying, okay, there is this breakdown. Now, in this one, it's it's more straight neurophysiology, right? But to be fair, she looked for prefrontal to accumbens connections because of the computational theories about oh, yeah, how yeah. decision-making works. I, I started training in the, in the late 70s, and the, the, the biopsychosocial model was the big thing then, that, you know, there had been this too much binary thinking between psychogenic and, and organic. And, um, it, 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 you know, it made you feel you were doing something new, although nobody could really put it together. Is, is part of the ambition of computational psychiatry to take that to the next level? at least to, to sort of mix the bio and the and, and the behavioral and as many components as you can, and then to try and find a solution around that. 
Absolutely. And, 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 and I think, I think a large part of it is that computational psychiatry comes as an offshoot of computational neuroscience. And computational neuroscience really arrives in the, the late 80s and early 90s, kind of in the 90s, I would say, the 1990s. Computational neuroscience turned out to be the way to connect, excuse me, the way to connect neurophysiology to behavior. That is, if you want to understand how does this connection structure in visual cortex change how the behavior consequence of seeing an illusion in something, you need to understand the computation of the visual cortex. Right. Right. And 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 that really kind of appeared in the 90s. Uh, and I mean, it was still it was there in the 80s, you know, and, and like all these things, you can always find like a little trail going back all the way back. Yeah. Right. I mean, nothing is ever complete. Science builds on itself. Mm -hmm. That's what science, one of the beauties of what science does. So computation by this time that we're talking about in the mid 2000s has been accepted as the way of making that connection from low level across levels within neuroscience. So now we're talking psychiatry, what we've got fundamentally is a behavior issue, right? All psychiatry in the end is about behavior. And I, this is a, a, a pet peeve of mine where people say, yes, but I, I did a survey and it's really about how they're thinking. And I'm like, no, your survey is a behavior, yeah, right? Yeah. If somebody comes in and says, I have suicidal ideation, that does not mean they have suicidal ideation. No, no. Right. It means they have expressed the action <laughs> of saying I have suicidal ideation. And and I, I thought for years about trying to find a good example. And I realized finally referred pain. Right. If the doctor, if somebody comes in and says, Doc, I have shooting pains down my left arm. Yeah. And the doctor starts measuring their things about their wrist. Mm. That's not right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, they should be ignoring the fact that they're telling you my arm hurts and they should be looking at cardiology. At least that's my understanding. Right. Yeah, and because so, that's what you, but we understand where the pain comes from in that sense. Don't, you know, we know the sort of the wiring and all that, really. So, um, exactly. Yeah, so so, it may be any, any number of things. I, I, I get that. Yeah. Right. So, in the same way, if somebody comes in and does some act, some, so, so now we go to all psychiatry is behavior in the end. Yeah. Right. So how do we connect up behavior? We connect up behavior through this computational understanding. So in order, and, and as we said, it's a computational interaction between the external world and the internal, right? And the internal processing. Um, that internal processing contains memory. We know a lot about how memory works. Um, you know, going back honestly to Hebb and to uh, Elizabeth Loftus, for example, right, who showed that memory is not veridical, right, that memory can be modified, yeah. and that it is not stored as a perfect storage. Exactly, that it's reconstructed. I will point out that computationally, one of the big things that happened in the 80s and 90s was these network structures explained why the Loftus data comes the way it does. Right. Right. We actually have very good models of that. In fact, models that mechanistically we can use, we are. So I want to be careful because as I'm not a medical doctor and nobody should ever do anything I say, and I'm always hesitant because I get very excited about forefront stuff. Um, 
I know some colleagues are looking at how to use that knowledge of memory to affect PTSD, given yeah. that um, we know how memory is stored originally uh, with this kind of you are here, very vivid episode. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, very vivid episode. Uh, wow, I can't talk. Um, <laughs> episodical uh, uh, kind of mechanism and shifted over time into this story of I'm just telling it about semantic. What is the relation of PTSD to that? And people who work on PTSD are looking at that. That's a computational transformation. We know the neural structures underlying it. We know the mechanisms. Can we use those mechanisms to affect PTSD? I don't know, but I know a lot of colleagues who are looking into that right now. But actually, and our movement desensitization, in a sense, is is a is a chance finding that that seems to presumably disrupt the processing of those memories in in a, in a useful way for some people. So I want to be very careful because I don't know. EMDR is a fascinating thing, and I, I would love to. I'll send a message in a bottle. Any sleep researcher wants to come talk to me about EMDR, I would love right. to talk to them about it. I have I have a sleep colleague. I've been trying to get to work right. on this. I suspect that EMDR, and I use that word very carefully. Mm -hmm. I suspect that EMDR is shifting the brain into the same oscillatory state that happens during sleep. And that what is, because we know that consolidation, that transmission from, that the shift of the information from the episodic storage component into the semantic storage component, we know that happens during sleep. And mechanistically, we can see that in humans, in rats, in many, many species. Right. Yeah, yeah. I suspect EMDR is shifting you into that system. Now, that's a total suspicion. I have no data. I have no, I want to be real careful about that, right? That's one of those hunches I would love to go chase with somebody, right. but I haven't convinced anybody. And, and my lab doesn't have the technologies to go look at that. But the, those technologies absolutely exist. Right. You know? Wow. Well, I mean, it's got, it's got to come, but it, it seems another of those um, sort of lateral thinking, um, you know, approach to a, 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 a significant mental disorder. Could, could right. you talk about depression a little bit? Because, I mean, that's another thing that's been thought about a lot with this, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um... I haven't personally worked that much on depression, but of course, you know, within the field, um, a lot of data, there are, of course, many kinds of depression. And one of the big issues, of course, is the um, the DSM was, and I, I think it's very important to say, all the psychiatrists now like to say it was a theoretical and not theory, and that's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a theory. Yeah. It is, it is, it, it's an incorrect theory, but it was a theory that basically said these categorizations are meaningful from a treatment perspective. Yeah. And, and as I understand it, that's pretty much broken down and it was a good try. I mean, I think it's really important to point out that this was a good try and science moves forward. Well, it was an exercise in reliable labeling, in a sense, because we didn't even speak the same language before, you know. So right. we, we labeled it, but then that didn't lead to any reliable biomarkers of these big old-fashioned categories, did it, really? So Right. Yeah, and so it, there was a really interesting... So I was a part... I helped organize this thing called the Strungman Forum once uh, in 2015, or I guess it was the book... Yeah, 2015. Um, 
which uh, I organized it with a colleague named Josh Gordon. And um, Josh is now head of NIMH, which um, came after that. It was very interesting. Uh, it's part of why computational psychiatry has kind of become this thing. But but I, I Josh had a, uh, was a, we were both doing um, kind of basic neuroscience, but he had, as I like to say, a side gig as a psychiatrist. I mean, he was a practicing, he is a practicing psychiatrist and, um, you know, very talented and respected there. Uh, and I had a side gig as a computational guy. And I was like, if I bring the computer people, the computational people, can you bring the psychiatrists? And we did this. And this meeting is a amazing thing where you lock, you take senior researchers, you know, about 40 or so, lock them in a room in the suburbs of Frankfurt and make them write a book together. Wow. <laughs> yeah, in a week. Um, it's incredibly intense and incredibly incredible. It's just amazing. It was one of the most one of my favorite things I've ever done. Um, but one of the things that came out of this was the DSM. We need to see the DSM as a measurement, not as a um, uh, uh, a diagnosis. That is the in the same way that I can come in and measure a fever, but a fever could be caused by many things, right? It could be caused by a viral infection or bacterial infection or sunstroke. All of those produce fever, right? And they require very different treatments. So a diagnosis is, I mean, on the other hand, a fever probably doesn't mean your arm is broken. No, no. Right. So it's so, kind of phenotype, really. It's just a sort of a, a, you know, a reliably described set of behaviors, really. Exactly. And so what we need to see is the DSM diagnoses as phenotypes and then figure out what the actual disorder is, right? In the same way that I said, addiction is a symptom, not a disease, yeah. right? Depression is a symptom, not a disease, right? Sure. Right. So now the question comes, what are the computational breakdowns that produce this symptom of depression? Yeah. Um, as I know it, there are three that I've heard of that I, I think these are, I think there would be many more. Um, but there are three that I know of kind of that that people have suggested. One is that there's a fundamental just overall motivation component. Another is that one has trouble creating any expectation of the future. And the third is that one actually creates expectations of the future, but is incorrectly optimistic about it. Uh, one of my favorite and data points is that people who are not depressed, kind of, uh, I'll say normal, I don't know if that's fair. Uh, I don't know if that's a neurotypical is I think the word that people prefer. Uh, uh, neurotypical people, um, when they imagine futures, they tend to be overly optimistic. Um, and there are computational reasons to actually show that that's better. That is a, a an agent that is living in an environment where they are overly optimistic about the future does better than an agent that is not. Yeah, um, it, it's, it's, we can get into it. It has to do with simulations about environments and structures and things Especially like that. Especially as you get older, believe me, that's, uh, <laughs> it helps. <laughs> but people who are depressed are actually more accurate. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> which, which bother, which is depressing, right? right. Right. They're very, very specifically, they're actually more accurate about how they're going to feel afterwards. So they're not optimistic enough. Um, but again, these are computational underlying consequences, right? And 
it's very interesting to think about how these consequences interact in with the environment. Well, and other other um, sort of biological or psychological testing things that can uh, that can correlate with these. You can say, oh, they were you have this propensity to misprocess in this way and therefore maybe we can start trying to like you say with ptsd you know that, that right. uh, um we're working on it is i think the right yeah. answer right. um i mean delay discounting is a you know if somebody has if somebody has an addiction problem and has a delay discounting over uh is over quick they could try episodic future thinking um Another one, another treatment that is very interesting is contingency management, which is basically pay people not to take drugs. So the idea is you come in, you show that you have, you know, through a urine sample or something that you haven't used in the past whatever days, uh, and you get a little tiny reward. And they're tiny, right. right? So the original one in, I think, 92 was a $2 gift certificate to a, a movie house. So in the US, there was this, this um, video store called Blockbuster, which would allow you to, you know, you rent a video. Yeah, we used home. to have those. Right? Okay. And, and literally, the reward was um, a free movie from Blockbuster. Right. Right. And people who were spending hundreds of dollars on drugs would stop using them <laughs> for this $2 movie. Right? Wow, and so we did a study, and actually just finished a, a paper with a colleague who replicated it. So it's really cool that it actually replicates. Um, contingency management works so much better than expected. That is, if we simply increase the price of the drug on the street by two dollars through some mechanism, right, it would have a very small effect. That's kind of the point. Drugs are not sure. what are called elastic; they're inelastic. You increase the price, people still use them. Um, people are sensitive to costs, but they're not as sensitive, right? But then in contingency management, people will stay off drugs for this little ticket, right? This free, wow. this gold star. And we think it's a hypothesis that, and we're, we're, we're setting up to test it. So it's, again, mm. we're testing. This is kind of where the future is, right? This is where yeah. this field is going. Yeah. Um, that what it's doing is switching between these decision systems. It's ch by changing the external world of, am I willing to pay this much for drug to a question of, would I rather have my drug or my gold star? You're <laughs> switching the decision process in the brain. Right. If that's true, and that's an if, we know what those systems are, we could test for the integrity of those systems. You could go in test whether those systems are working and if they are say you're a good candidate for contingency management and if they're not we could either try to repair them or we could say you need a different treatment paradigm do you mean test by some like fmri or some some yeah okay exactly uh, okay if the exactly. you, you know you're, you uh, free netflix subscription could um that could be a great sort of way to uh get people off substances really but, right uh, until they're addicted to netflix <laughs> well that's true, that's true. <laughs> well that is true that is true uh, you know, they go back yeah. to the real world oh, wait, can we talk about potential pitfalls then, of this because uh I, I mean i get i get that it's kind of exciting and it's maybe the future and you know putting all these different concepts together and models together but so what's a hazard or pitfall 
Hazard's a tough one. I'm not sure that there are specific hazards. I mean, one, I guess one hazard is that it's easy to try to oversimplify the theory. And we need to remember that the world is complex, right? And that it's theories work by making things simpler. And sometimes you oversimplify. And we yeah. want to be careful not to do that. That's not so much a problem with computational psychiatry per se, as you know, just we have to be careful of that. That's well, true. We that. I mean, the simple, you know, serotonin model of depression right. really is overly simple and has all of the same problems. So, you know. Right. And, and and that is actually a good point. So well, the other thing is computational psychiatry is going to be incomplete. It's not the whole story. It's not going to replace it. But I'd like to see it become integrated into psychiatry the way pharmacology is, right? Oh. We don't really have a, nobody, you know, calls up and says, okay, tell me about pharmacological psychiatry, right? There's oh. no, there's no term for that. It's just, it's part of psychiatry, oh. right? And, and as I understand it, right, pharmacology kind of came into psychiatry in what, the 50s, 60s, something 50s. like that? Yeah. 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 Uh, genetics came into psychiatry in the 90s. Right. Computations coming into psychiatry in the 2010s and 2020s. Right. And if we contribute to psychiatry as much as pharmacology and genetics did, hallelujah, that's a contribution. Right. You know, I, I, I see it as a piece of the puzzle. But, um, you know, and the other issue is, you know, we're learning a lot about the brain as well. Right. It, it goes both ways. One of the things I love about this is it's not only we take what we know about neuroscience and apply it to psychiatry. As we learn about psychiatry, it informs us of neuroscience. And we can go backwards and actually learn kind of basic stuff about how the, the, the fundamental science works as well. And that has huge implications beyond psychiatry. Yeah, and some of the models, I mean, I, I got very excited. Uh, well, my whole career was changed by a paper on information processing and schizophrenia. You know, mm. but way back, Chris Frith, the, Sure. So I'm I'm very much sort of on board with with this thinking, but it, it you know that was 40 years ago. Well, I try to keep these to uh, 40 minutes so as not to take up too much people's time. Okay. Well, uh, thanks ever so much. That's been uh, that's been great, David. Wonderful. Thank you that's for having brilliant. me.